Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series through the penitential psalms. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we're working our way through the penitential psalms. And I would imagine uh, that this is a psalm that is familiar to most, if not all of us. The Psalm of David. The introduction to this psalm says to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan was the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's the setting. Of course, we we know that he elaborates beyond that. Uh, But that's the psalm that we're looking at today. Let's look at God's holy and inspired word together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, for I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. O gracious God, You are source of all light, and by Your Word You give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by You in Holy Scripture, our hearts and our minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We might say today that uh, David's one-night stand with Bathsheba 
resulted in an unwanted pregnancy. And so, what did David do? Well, he, he summoned Bathsheba's husband, who was fighting a war on the king's behalf. He summoned him home. But he didn't summon him home to confess sin, but to entice him. To pass off the child of a king as the child of a soldier. It didn't work. You remember that, right? And so, David shamefully used his regal power to manipulate the course of justice to injustice, resulting in the battlefield death of Uriah the Hittite. The cover-up was complete. Well, that is until the prophet Nathan showed up with a story. A little story that went something like this. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And the story was remarkably effective. And it enraged the king who commanded, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then, with the subtlety of a sledgehammer, Nathan said, revealing who the villain of the story was, You are the man. You are the man. And what followed was the revelation that should surprise no one. The supreme judge of heaven and earth he saw it all. There was nothing hidden from his eyes. David's guilt was great. And according to the law, David deserved death. But he would not die. He repented. And God mercifully forgave him. And though the consequences of his sin would remain, as a forgiven and restored son of God, David could sing this psalm that we have read together this morning. He could sing of, confession, of his confession of sin, of his contrition, of the community that he enjoyed by the gracious gift of God. And I will tell you, he leads us to do the same together today. Because you see, we're not merely listeners to the psalm, we're sinners too. Like David, we are prone to deny our sin. You know, like it never happened. If I don't think about it, maybe it'll go away. We're prone to hide its evidence. And sadly, we even hurt others to avoid its consequences. Now, our sins may not be as brash as David's sin of adultery and murder, 
But even the sins that we dismiss, they can corrupt our fellowship and they can contaminate our conscience. Thankfully, thankfully God does not leave us to wallow in our sin. But He sends His Holy Spirit to graciously say to you, and graciously say to me, you are the man. But He doesn't stop there, just as He didn't stop there in His revelation to David. For God says this, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now I want to think together about this 51st Psalm and how it begins. And I like to think of it as beginning where David leaves off with Nathan. David confesses this to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. But then the Psalm begins with David's cry to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David here uses three synonyms for sin, doesn't he? Look at the passage with me, verses 1 and 2. He uses the word transgressions for sin. He uses the word iniquity for sin. And of course, he uses the word sin for sin. And in all of this, what David is conveying is the totality of his sin. He's leaving nothing back. He's confessing it all to the Lord. He no longer hides. Well, he no longer hides what could never be hidden in the first place. Great is David's sin. But David's sin is no greater than the forgiveness of the self-revealed one. God said of Himself, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And how does David respond to this truth? Well, thankfully, David does not offer to work for a wage. He ain't a paying customer, right? He appeals that God give him grace. And knowing that his sin is ever before him, and I might add, fascinatingly enough, his sin is ever before him and it's recorded in the Word of God. We're reading his confession today together. It's before us as well. His prayer is not that his sin be blotted out of human history. No, he's praying that it be forgiven. That his sin be forgiven. And so it was. Such is the merciful forgiveness of God. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered that conviction of sin is also a mercy of God? We don't think about it that way, do we? It's as if, well, conviction, that's, that's the negative. Conviction of sin is a mercy. Conviction of sin is a blessing. For the child of God, you see, we are never left alone. It is not as if God says, well, John sinned. Well, it was just one too many this time. He's done it this time. No. He never leaves us alone. He never removes Himself from us. But rather, we are never separated from His Spirit. Yes, it's true that David could pray. He even feared that the Lord would take away his kingly anointing, God's spiritual blessing for him as the king. 
But God would never take away His sonship. We cannot lose what can never be lost. And conviction proves it. We can never lose what could never be lost. And conviction of sin proves it. Conviction of sin is a shout to you. And it's a shout to me to say, You are my child. And I have not redeemed you for this. You are my child. Confess your sins to me. It may at times feel like God is, as David puts it in the psalm, like He's breaking our bones. Have you ever felt like that? But even then, it is a mercy reserved for the child of God that God gives by His grace. And it's because of this mercy that David, well David, I mean we would say David comes clean, doesn't he? And confessing in verse 3 and 4, look with me, he says, For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's confession does not negate his sin against Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah or his sin against his country and kinsmen. No, but what it does convey is that as sin is, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, all sin, this is key for us to remember, all sin is ultimately sin against a holy God. Apologizing to your neighbor, that's a good idea. And it's courteous, but it's not a confession. Classifying sin as a hereditary trait or a disorder, or well, it's just merely a mistake, may help you with your mounting guilt. But that's not confession. Confession involves full agreement. It is as if we say, yes, God, you're right. It is full agreement with God that sin is sin. And full acknowledgement that we have sinned against Him. Anything less is to call God a liar. Now here's the challenge for you and for me. We're born sinners. I'm a professional. And so are you. Inheriting this sin nature from our father Adam. No descendant escapes it. Even this conceived child in the womb, as David directs our attention here. Even the child in the womb has the sin nature. We are all brought forth in iniquity. And for this reason, our only hope is not moral resolve. I, I realize that that's what the world tells us. But our hope is not moral resolve. Our only hope is spiritual rebirth. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? He said, you must be born again. That is that the Holy Spirit may, is necessary to regenerate us, to bring us to spiritual life, from spiritual death to life. And by virtue of this new birth, we are enabled to savingly believe the gospel. We are empowered by His presence to live as godly children unto Him. And as the Lord delights 
in truth, in the inward being. He helps us. For He is the helper. He counsels us. For He is the counselor. He teaches us. For He is the teacher. And He cleanses us. For He is the Holy Spirit. And He cleanses us through His abiding presence. And yet, newsflash, our sinful nature remains. Our sinful nature continues. And it is an inhibitor to our growth in grace. But, lest you think that I'm telling you that there's no hope, to be clear, we are not held hostage by our flesh. We are not helpless victims because we're sinners by nature and we're just, you know, as the world would tell us, well, you're just an animal. You just do what's instinctually right to an animal. Baloney. We are made in the image of God. We are redeemed by our risen Savior. We indwell by the Holy Spirit. That is a bunch of nonsense that the world spouts off. We are not helpless victims. And the Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit enables us in this vitally important aspect of our Christian life. Repentance. The Holy Spirit leads us to repent of our sin. No longer continuing in sin, but turning Away from that sin. And this is a fruit of the Holy Spirit's presence. And it's also a response to that conviction that God gives us. That grace of God. It's not an excuse. It's not justification to keep on sinning. Oh, be careful, John, what you tell those Christians. You know, if you tell them about the grace of God, they're going to become even more vile sinners. (laughs) Like, I'm not sure I can get any more vile. Right? I was born this way. What I need is the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you do too. You see, when Nathan confronted David, David was not like simply sorry. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, murder a guy, steal his wife, doggone it. <laughs> you know what that word means, right? Okay, doggone it. Yeah. He didn't really say that, but that's how I envision it. No. David truly, as he was convicted, truly repented of his sin. He was crushed with the weight of the conviction. And he repented of his sin. You see, as David says in verse 17, For God delights. God delights in a broken and contrite heart. Now, to be clear... This doesn't mean that we wear our sin like the scarlet letter. Right? Remember the Nathaniel Hawthorne novel? doesn't mean that we walk around with the scarlet letter on our clothing as if, well, this is what I've got to carry. No. If we sin, the Apostle John puts it this way. He says, listen, folks, if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Present tense. Not past tense. Right now, in this moment... Every child of God who sins has an advocate for the Father. John reveals who that advocate is, by the way. He says, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now that's good news. We have an advocate with God our Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And because of this, we confess our sins. We read it this morning. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And he who is faithful and just to forgive also cleanses us by the presence of his sanctifying spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is at work in doing in your life and in my life. He is holy and what he does is holy and he is sanctifying us, molding and making us into the image of Christ. This is an essential part of our sanctification. But so great is the power of unconfessed sin that it can contaminate our conscience. Jade our perspective. And hear me clearly because this applies to every born-again Christian who falls into sin. Unconfessed sin can lead to more sin. See also the life of King David. David... I encourage you, uh, for example, to read the account in Samuel. David went from lust on the rooftop to adultery to lying to murder. And when David, when Nathan showed up and told David his story, David is so jaded. He is so jaded in his judgment. Perversion had so clouded his perception in a fog of harbored sin that he was oblivious to the point of the story. I mean, we read it and we're like, David must have been a moron. He wasn't. He was no dummy. But that's what sin does. Sin makes you clueless. And me, clueless. And I don't need any help, right? I'm struggling as it is. (laughs) But that's what happens. Spiritual cleansing then is necessary. And here's the way the Lord does it. He cleanses from the inside out. He cleanses from within. I love this prayer. I know many of you probably have it memorized. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David is not praying to be born again. Again, he's not praying to be justified as righteous, although he's already justified as righteous. No, that's not what he's praying here. What he is praying is that he be a pure vessel, faithfully obedient unto the Lord. David describes it using the the metaphor of a hyssop branch, which interestingly enough was used in ceremonial Worship and was used for the sprinkling of water. It was an act, a picture of spiritual purity. I think about confession, I think about conviction of sin, I think about contrition, I think about confession of sin, and I think, oh, how sweet is the fragrance of forgiveness given by the grace of God. How beautiful that is. And with the Spirit's cleansing comes joy. In fact, If you didn't catch it, David actually prays for joy in this psalm. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And while sin does not rob us of our salvation, sin does rob us of joy. But repentance and confession, true contrition, restores the joy that God can only give. And it's, it's, a, it's a godly joy. And it's worth fighting for. 
All too often, you and I listen and we believe the world's lie that sin is enticing, that it's pleasurable, and that it'll lead to joy. How's that working out for you? How's that working out for the world? No, for the child of God, even though in the moment sin may seem pleasurable, we're left miserable. And we can even experience spiritual depression deadening us to the pleasures of God. But think with me about this. If your chief end and my chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and if joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is, then every Christian desires the Spirit-filled joyness, a joy and gladness of godliness. Think about that. If that is who we are in Christ, then every single one of us, we have been redeemed to desire exactly what God gives. The joy and gladness of godliness. I like to think about it this way, and I hope this is helpful. Obedience is a fight for joy. The joy of godliness. If, if, if you are a child here today and you are under the age of 15, I want you to hear me clearly. Hear me clearly. Obedience is a fight for joy. The joy of godliness. If you are over 15, but they in the ages of 16 and 33 and a half, I want you to hear me clearly. You know where this is going, don't you, Don? Okay, let's go ahead and take it on up. I don't know how, the old, how old the oldest dude is, but I think I know him here today, somewhere in the 80s. And beyond, listen clear, obedience is a fight for joy, the joy of godliness. It's almost like I need that on repeat, but I understand it to be true by the blessing of God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this psalm, up until this point, I would imagine most of you have been familiar with this portion of the psalm. But here's what I found in my own study, and this may be true for you as well. There's a temptation to conclude the psalm at verse 12. Go ahead, look at it, see if you don't agree with me. When I'm studying and I think about it for devotional use, and my confession of sin, and my prayers... It's almost like, well, we got to verse 12 and the psalm ends there. I can remember reading the psalm as a young man and I thought, that's the weirdest way to end a psalm. Hmm. David's personal cry is concluded. We've gleaned the pertinent verses for devotional use, but the psalm does not end with verse 12. Our study shouldn't either. Because as David shifts from himself, note this, Pay attention, as he shifts from an individual self, he is now shifting to the covenant community. We are taught something here. And the something is often overlooked in our study of this psalm. The effects of sin, you see, are not merely individual, but they are communal. Our forgiveness and restoration, you see, they are blessings to us, but they're blessings to the church as well. For good reason does James teach us to, and I quote, confess our sins to one another. 
The Christian life, you see, is not a woeful life of isolation. It's a forgiven life in fellowship. Therefore, as a man, as the king, as a child of God, David does not want his country or his kinsmen and the religion to suffer for his sin. He prays. And we see that here in these remaining verses. He prays for God's favor. Prays that his favor will continue to rest upon his people. He prays for the protection of his nation. The perpetuity of his throne. The place of God's tabernacle. And he prays with purpose. And yes, I just did use four P's in a row. Protection, perpetuity, place, and purpose. For what? That the Lord would delight in the sacrifices of His people. In His confession and contrition, rightly does David direct us, he directs us to the altar. You see how this psalm ends? The writer of Hebrews reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But the right sacrifice, as David puts it, made here did not truly atone for sin, but it served as a type. We might say it served as a, as a marker, as an indicator of a greater sacrifice to come. It is impossible, the writer of Hebrews says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. And echoing David's confession here, the writer in Hebrews explains that in Old Covenant worship, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But what? But Christ? Christ came, offering Himself as the single sinless sacrifice for sins, through which He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. David is pointing rightly to the sacrificial altar because in it is the gospel portrayed. And so it was. In Christ, the sacrifice offered once and for all in Him. And David is not willing to keep this gospel news. He's not willing to keep this good news to himself. But he's now going to become a teacher he says, now I'm going to start teaching those transgressors the ways of God. And I'm going to start teaching the sinners to repent. And if you think about it, this is what preachers and teachers in the church do. Folks, if all I ever do, did was stand up here in front of you and pointed a bunch of transgressors to try harder, and a bunch of sinners to strive to do better to earn God's saving favor, that is no gospel at all. That would shackle you. But what preachers and teachers do as saved sinners, we point other sinners to the Savior. That's what we do. We say, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but there is a Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in teaching David also includes praise. Don't you love that? We're getting like a snapshot of congregational worship here now, aren't we? We've got conviction. We've got confession. We've got contrition. We've now got teaching. We've now got pointing to the gospel. And David says, 
Now let's sing about it. Now it's time to sing. And for all of you here that go, well, I'm, not, I'm just not a singer, John. You ain't heard me sing. I'm not a very good singer. Well, neither is the person next to you. But we sing anyway. David is ready to sing aloud of God's righteousness to open his lips, as he puts it, to declare his praise. He who was delivered sings out as one saved from death to life because, folks, that's what saved people do. That's what we do. The wages of David's sin and yours and mine is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this leads us to see corporate worship far differently than the world. Because the world says, good grief, have these folks not got it yet? Every single Sunday, they just see people and going back to the building with the steeple. You would think, well, they must be dummies. You would think that they would have gotten it by now. Gotten the lesson and moved on to real life. You know, real life like Netflix. <laughs> now, when, 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 you, when you deserve death, and you are pardoned, and you're given life for Christ's sake, here's what happens. You want to get together with other people who have been pardoned and saved. And you know what you want to do? You want to celebrate. That's what saved people do. And so here's my... Here's my address to a lost and dying world. Dear lost and dying world, do you know why we Christians gather every single Sunday to worship a Jewish man who died on a Roman cross? Here's why. Because He is the Lord. And He isn't dead, but is risen. And right at this moment is reigning in heaven. And through His righteous life, and through His sacrificial death, and through His victorious resurrection, you and I, by grace alone, through faith alone, have been forgiven of our sin, adopted into His family, given His Spirit, and promised eternal life. All of us. All of us who, like David, have heard what David heard. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. We cannot help but assemble together, joyfully worshiping every Lord's day. And we're going to continue to do it until the very last Sunday. And then we're going to do it every day, forever. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is indeed God-breathed. And we thank You that as we look at this psalm of confession and conviction and contrition, we also see the blessing of community. That we are people who have gathered together on this Lord's Day. That we are a people who gather not to celebrate our obedience to striving and works, but we celebrate the grace of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And as today we celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, just as David pointed to the sacrifice upon the altar, 
we know that Christ will not be re-sacrificed today, but He was sacrificed once. And so we gather today as He is spiritually present, looking at the emblems of the bread and the wine. And in them we see the perfect righteousness of Christ. We see His atoning blood. And we see in Him how we are not only redeemed, but so also spiritually fed. We pray that He would be glorified both in the preaching, hearing of, his word, of your word, but so also in communion today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.